Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond Pryor. Areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. And with me, as always, is my intrepid instructor and coach, Chase Cooper, my co-host. How are you, Chase? I'm good, Doc. I'm excited about today. I'm uh, My students know I'm not a very good putter, and uh, we've got a, uh, a putting expert on today. So maybe he that can... That sounds... Uh, first of all, check that fixed mindset real quick. <laughs> <laughs> but... Also, that's what they, yeah, I, I don't got, believe it. That's what they tell me. They tell me when I miss putts, oh, I'm not a very good putter, but I'm still, ex- yeah, I'm well, still exploring and, and learning, baby. Then, then we need to start checking your relationship with other people's opinions. Just because that's right. they're, they're exist, mean, so. they're mean All to right. me. I hit it so good. And so they got to, they got to tear me down somewhere or another. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, <laughs> can't have it all. Uh, that's right. That's right. And with us, as you were alluding to, we have a treat today. We have Marcus Potter of Potter's Putting, um, a, vastly quickly growing name in the world of putting um he's got some really deep and rich insights um into putting and the ways that people can get better at it so the good news about this is i'm gonna tee us up a little bit uh marcus ask you some questions about yourself and then i'm gonna do like we did in our last episode i'm gonna lay out while you and chase uh talk coach swing and coach speak and all that stuff and break down some stuff and maybe i'll throw in a question as i get curious and see if we can't learn a little bit more putting along the way sounds good so um Marcus, tell us about yourself a little bit in terms of like where you're from, introduction to golf. Like, give us the abridged version of kind of uh, your history here. Uh, so I was born and raised just south of Portland, Oregon, a little town called Tualatin. Uh, my dad was a really good player, played college golf, played a little bit of professional golf, was always a really good putter. I've uh, been playing golf since I was really four or five years old, just kind of always enjoyed it. Uh, putting was just always something I was good at. Uh, I got a scholarship, played college golf at San Jose State in Northern California. And then that's kind of where the whole putters putting thing started was my senior year of college. I started an Instagram page called putters putting and just started talking about like videos of Tiger. And it would be, I like how Tiger does this or Tiger does that. And then at that time, there weren't too many putting pages specifically, and it kind of took off pretty quickly. And that's the kind of the short abridged version. And then once that kind of started gaining some followers, PJ Tour players started reaching out, and that's how I ended up actually coaching out on tour. Yeah, okay. So what is it about putting that you gravitated to? You had mentioned that you were good at it, and it seemed to have come to you pretty quickly and easily, but everybody, for everybody, putting gets difficult. In fact, the better <laughs> you are, oftentimes, the more frustrating it becomes. So what is it about putting more than perhaps like full swing instruction or just general short game instruction that really um, gravitated toward you? Uh, kind of, maybe this is a psychologist's point of view or something, but I always kind of view putting like shooting a basketball. I always enjoyed basketball shooting. And I feel like putting is golf's version of shooting a basketball. So you can stand out there and make putts. It's the one area where you can really kind of make a difference in putting or in golf, especially. But I just kind of always thought it was fun because it's ultimately a big difference maker where if you can make a few extra putts, kind of pisses people off. And, uh, it's just something really fun to do. (laughs) That is a part of the game. For golf, at least ninety more than ninety nine percent of the time, you score while putting. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And in basketball, you can't score unless you actually shoot the ball into the basket, <laughs> right? So it makes sense. So you gravitated toward the thing where you score. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Okay. What was your, I might say, your introduction to putting instruction? Observing dad. Yeah. So my dad's honestly one of the best putters I've ever seen. Still to this day, any tour player, I would, my dad, I couldn't even imagine him when he was actually in his prime because I've seen him when he was, wasn't playing much golf and still 
hoop three or four 25 plus footers every round, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of just watched someone from a really young age that was always a phenomenal putter. And I think that naturally kind of helped me become a better putter, just watching someone good. Obviously, that helped him. He's a short hitter off the tee, and I kind of adopted that as well. <laughs> a negative thing, but at least I learned how to putt. But it was definitely from him. He spent a lot of time putting. He kind of taught me. He, he's really the only person I've taken a putting lesson from. Mm. I've obviously learned from a bunch of different people now, but he's kind of the main source of instruction where a lot of my stuff came from originally, and then I've just built on that. Yeah, right on. What are some of the other areas where you have gathered information about putting? Putting is an interesting skill, not just in golf, but in the world of sport, because it's relatively unathletic. However, it's really, really important because the mar <laughs> you know, unlike hitting a green or a fairway, even though there is a margin for error, the margin of error for putting is make or miss. 100%. Hence why it's so valuable to golfers. If you hit a wayward drive, somehow get it up near the green, get it on the green, and then make a putt, it can make up for a lot of stuff. Yep. That's not, excuse me, it's not uncommon that players will tell me, I thought I played great both days. The difference between day one and day two was I just made three or four more putts that I didn't make, right? So where, where, so that with such importance upon this stroke in terms of how valuable it can be for just scoring period, end of sentence, where were the places where you started to gather information about the the system, the process, the skill itself? So it's definitely been in phases, I would say. Initially, when I started Potter's Putting, it was mainly stroke-related stuff. And then just through experience of a lot of it's been working with tour players at the highest level where it's kind of been, you got to figure it out pretty quickly with these guys and a little trial, trial and error. And then I've given about maybe 8,000 online lessons. And so that's been a big factor as well. But I've learned from people like Craig Farnsworth, one of my students on the PGA Tour, and I went and saw him. He's an eye doctor that's also a putting coach. And I learned a lot about visual stuff from him. And there's just been a lot of different people, whether it be good putters on tour, I've asked questions about without Denny McCarthy, uh, Kevin Kisner. I've asked these guys a couple questions. And I just take little tidbits from everyone that I can, and I take what I like, and I kind of discard what I don't like. And that's kind of how I've formed my philosophy Lately, it's kind of been more green reading with Tori by Ralph Bauer. He's kind of helped me kind of get into that process. And that's been kind of the final piece really for me of kind of putting it all together in terms of stroke, everything else, start line, uh, speed, and then getting that green reading back in there has been a huge asset as well. Yeah, okay. So there have been a, a variety of different people that have uh, contributed. You had mentioned there that you kind of, you're picking out information. You know, one of the things that experts tend to do is they tend to take in a lot of information, a lot of different viewpoints, but then they have filters for finding, well, what is the valuable information? Maybe even if it's valuable for somebody else, but what's valuable for me, right? So they've got these, it's kind of a funneled approach of a lot of information. And then I sift it out to find like, you know, the good stuff. What is the criteria for you? Or, or you might say, what are the processes where you're taking a lot of information and you're filtering out, like, like you said, you said what I like and what I don't like, but really what you're saying is, what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. So for me, it was kind of stuff where like, again, I had my initial views, initial thoughts on whether it be stroke or whatever in regards to putting and taking that and just hearing how other people's philosophies, watching other people give lessons. Obviously there's so much stuff on social media now that you can kind of take tidbits from really good coaches. Like there's a bunch of really good putting coaches that have done uh, seminars that are on YouTube. You can go watch those and take little bits from them. I've done stuff like that, but it's really just listening to whatever it has to say. And kind of like you said, narrowing it down in a funnel to, okay, 
this directly relates to what I believe in putting and it either contradicts it or it agrees with it. And here's why it is either way. And I've kind of, I have had things where I'm like, okay, I don't care about as, that as much anymore as I do now. Mm. Like the stroke specifically would be one area where, like I said, I really started hardcore into the stroke itself, making that look good. And as I've kind of learned more and applied more stuff that I've taken from other people, it's like the stroke matters to be able to be consistent and repeat it, but it's not the only thing that's important. There's plenty of other factors that contribute to making putts. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, as you're kind of, again, kind of describing the formula for how people become experts, which is they start with some foundation of knowledge, introductory um, knowledge, and then they gather more and more information, but they're kind of picky and critical about it, or might even say skeptical, which again, are not bad things. They're us going, well, where's the value? Where's the truth in this? Right. Or, or how does this apply to something? And then you've kind of funneled out some things. And along the way, oftentimes we find out something I thought was really, really important might not have the same level of value as it did before. Are there other areas besides stroke where you initially thought, no, this is a must, or this is really, really valuable, but maybe it's different or vice versa, something you thought wasn't super valuable or important and you find out really is? Uh practice structure i would say i always kind of knew the importance of it but i didn't necessarily give it a ton of thought and especially as i've been around the better putters in the world the better golfers in general in the world the best ones whatever it be driver short game irons they all have a really specific system and stuff they use and that's kind of something that i've taken from people where like now it's finding whatever it is the three or four drills that you do with a certain player and you kind of stick with that and get really good at those and kind of ride that out. And then, especially with the guys on tour, there's so many stats that they can look at. And that's one of the things that's helped me be like, okay, we're going down this path is working well because it's going with the stats. Everything's kind of saying it's working. Or no, it's not working. As we did that, we got worse or whatever. But practice structure specifically has been a really big one. Yeah, you don't find too many really high performers anywhere who are practicing aimlessly. Yep. And that's the one thing that I've seen from specifically the best putters in the world, Denny McCarthy and Taylor Montgomery and Maverick McNeely goes in there. When they're on the putting green, they're so detail-oriented with everything they do. They don't hit a putt quickly. They don't rake putts to them. They take their time. They walk into it, get them into their setup the same way they would do it on the golf course. It's really detail-oriented, and I, I love how they do that. because I'll just be sitting on the putting green watching these guys do it sometimes. And I'll watch other guys who aren't as good of putters and how they go about it. And it's very sloppy compared to the best in the world. Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely see that people become experts, not only because they're good at something, but also because they become experts at practicing better than other people do in a lot of ways. You know, if you're treating, if you're just right, you know, we, we've Chase and I've talked about this on the podcast before that some of the most inefficient practice for golfers is just, you know, hit and rake on the driving range. It's very aimless. Your brain has no time to process what happened and, you know, decide what you did or what did you didn't do well or how a ball got to where it went to. And I'm just hitting a ball before the next one hits the ground. You know, the same rules apply oftentimes for a short game, which just happens to be a shorter thing that's trying to move in a straightish line. <laughs> yeah, right on. Okay. Um, how long have you been working with, um, you know, kind of elite putters? And then if I understand correctly in your current uh, kind of structure of coaching, you're also doing a lot more public facing and online stuff. Is is that correct? Yeah. So I first got out on tour in 2019. So I've been coaching out on tour since 
Uh, my very first event was actually the Phoenix Open in 2019. And so I've been doing that since then. And online lessons actually started about a year and a half before that. But I do a ton of online stuff, a ton of general public stuff. So I work with kind of the elite of the elite. And then I, I've worked with beginners and everything in between. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting to see the different levels of stuff and the appreciation of different levels. Like someone breaking 100 for the first time appreciates it as much as the guy winning on the PGA Tour. And that's kind of cool to see how people appreciate it getting to the next level, whatever their level may be. Yeah. Can you take us a little bit through your putting philosophy or or the perhaps the guiding principles that, that drive your teaching, whether you're teaching a tour player or how that might differ for perhaps a handicapped golfer or if, or if it does at all? Uh, I try and treat everyone the same. I'm not going to try and talk differently to anyone because ultimately I believe putting is one thing that a 25 handicapper could get as good as a guy on tour if they really wanted to. If they wanted to put in the time because you don't have to swing at 120 miles an hour. You don't have to do all this other stuff. It's something that anyone could really get good at. And so I try and take it the same for everyone. But it honestly, it's really become more refined as of this last up this last year specifically, where it's I want the set, uh, the setup and stroke to be repeatable, to be consistent, and then you just need to start it online, have good speed, and just be decent with your reads, and you'll make putts. Because the whole thing I care about is speed control, green reading, and start line. I don't care what the stroke really looks like anymore. Kind of going back to that a little bit, where as long as you can consistently start it online with the speed you envisioned and we get the green reading dialed in, you're going to make putts. Doesn't matter where you are, what kind of stroke you have. That's kind of how it's going to be. But that's really kind of my philosophy. It's just those three things, start line, yeah. speed control, and green reading. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, just before we get into that green reading, we're finding out statistically in the last about two decades, more of the last five or six years, that green reading skill is way more important than we used to think it was, isn't it? Yeah, and... That's what I've seen this year. Like I saw it firsthand with one of my players, Lee Hodges. Uh, we went from, he switched to conventional grip in February at Riviera or at Phoenix Open and went to a new putter. And then, so we did that until uh, Memorial. So it was from February to May. And so we didn't have any green reading system that we were using. He was pretty much dead neutral strokes gained putting in that time. And then at the Memorial, we introduced Tor Reed and he went all in on that. And had a bad first round at the Memorial, and that kind of scared me a little bit, but then had a really good last three days, and then went up to Canada right after the Memorial, had a great time, or had a great uh, session on the greens up there, and kind of was hooked at that point. But from Memorial to the end of the year, he was gaining about 0.5 around. So he gained 0.5 around just by adding in that green reading tool, yeah. which really gave him a lot of confidence and naturally helped his speed because he was hitting putts on a better line as well. Yeah, right on. I want to talk green reading systems in a second here, but real quick, this year is the first year that people weren't, you know, tour players aren't allowed to use green reading books. Are you aware of any stats that tell us that that was a significant change in terms of how well, because, you know, green reading is, is one thing. Using a book to read a green is also another thing, but if you can't read the book correctly, yep. you could you could then be looking at a putt, not knowing if it breaks. It's like there's a lot you know, green reading a book isn't necessarily like auto making, yeah. right? So have there been any stats to show whether people's, in general, people's putts, putting has improved, like just tour wide? 
Uh, I'm kind of curious on that because obviously this is the last tournament of the year, so of the season. So they're going to have all the season stats at the end of this. Yeah. And that's something I do want to kind of look at is whether it actually has helped or not. Because I've seen specific examples of one of my players at the Phoenix Open, and I believe it was 2020 or 2021, um, had a, two green reading books at the time. Because they were both out there. Two different systems, two green reading systems. And I remember he had a four-footer, and he, they looked at both books. Him and his caddy looked at both books. One had it going left, and one had it going right. On the same exact hole location, same exact green. And he chose one. And I remember I have a video from down the line of him. And it broke left and he played it to go right. And it was just, I chose the wrong book. So there's definitely things like that where I think people are going to commit to something and I think have better better odds of making it versus looking at two things and you're like, I don't know which one's which. Yeah. And But that was just an example of like, I think the greenery books actually could complicate things more. Yeah, no. So I would, I would be curious to see. I bet the stats are similar, but I honestly would say there's probably a slight bump in terms of making more putts, I would guess, actually. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. Um, Marcus, what are the, I might say the more predominant green reading strategies or methodologies, you know, and, and I would even lean to you to help our listeners inform, like which ones are, uh, we might even say better or more effective, right? Cause there's a, there's a million different ways to read greens, but there are some that are more efficient than others based on the research behind this. So take us through what you think, what, first of all, what they are and, and which ones that you would move players toward, or at least have them consider. So I would say the two main ones now are kind of Aimpoint Express, which is kind of the most well-known green rating system. And then Torreads, relatively new. I would say within the last year, I think it's kind of started to become more popular. They both, they all kind of all go off of slope percentage and green stimp. Torreads, more of a math-based system, which I personally like more. But Aimpoint Express, kind of using the fingers, obviously, that gives you a good ballpark read as well. But it all kind of goes back to you need to know the slope in terms of which way it is, obviously, and how much of it, what it is. And that is kind of the biggest thing. So for any person at home, I would say the best thing anyone could do, whether you use Aimpoint Express, whether you use Torrid or don't use anything at all, learning to gauge slope with your feet, I think, is one of the best things for anyone to do. Because just simply knowing that the puck goes right to left or left to right, you're already at a huge advantage. And then if you could kind of take that to the next level in terms of trying to gauge actually slope percentage doing that, then you could kind of introduce Aimpoint Express. You could introduce Tor Read. But I think starting with something, getting your feet first would be the best way to do it. But kind of going into what one I prefer. Again, I went into Tor Read this year because I didn't like the variance in Aimpoint Express. There's a lot of different nuances to it. Six feet, you're on the ball. Seven feet, you're behind the ball. Your arm's changing every uh Change based off green speeds and uphill and downhill. Torrey's math based, so you're going to get the same answer every time. And I kind of like that better. It doesn't give you necessarily an exact aiming spot, it'll give you seven inches, but I've found that to be really helpful. Kind of going back to a little bit of what I was saying earlier, where if you could start it online, have good speed, and your reads just in the general ballpark, you're still going to make putts. That's why the hole's four and a half inches, mm. gives us room to kind of have different speed to enter. But that's kind of where I'm at with it, where I look at greener as if you can just get green reading as if you can get in the right area, you're going to be in a really good spot as long as you have good speed. Yeah. What is the math in the tour read system? So I can't really give that away. That's part of their formula. Can but you give up, just give us what you can with it. Then. Yeah. So it's, it's just kind of related to how far you are, the slope percentage 
and you kind of multiply those by and there's a little something else in there, but it's unbelievably simple. Anyone could do this. Maybe not. I think Aimpoint Express might be easier for a kid, but mm -hmm. once you kind of hit 12, 13, I think Torrid would be something that anyone could really do. But it's just, it's a simple math equation that I've had a massive amount of success teaching general amateurs and specifically with Lee Hodges on the PGA Tour having a lot of success doing. Yeah, okay. So once you get through that eighth grade math, you're okay? Yeah, it's just, it's basic math, but it's a lot of numbers you're kind of thinking about in your head. So you kind of got to yeah, yeah, yeah. click. Okay. So real quick, Marcus, on that, is there an app? Can you get an app to learn it all? Or how, yeah. do, you, how do we find so out about it? It's, uh, th there's actually a great app. So Ralph Bauer is the one who invented it. It's called Tor Read. You can download it on the App Store. And pretty much it turns your phone into a level. And their equations are already in there. So you can set your phone down. And then it'll say it's two degrees left and one degree up. And you click, I'm at 10 feet on a 10 stimp or whatever. You click enter and it'll spit out whatever, six inches or whatever the break is for it. And that's actually been super helpful for people practicing. Kind of to see an actual read as opposed to kind of guessing where to hit it. And then not sure if you're pushing it on the line, pulling it onto the line. Interesting. And then the, so, right. so then the goal at that point is just making sure that our feet are calibrated. So we understand what the 3% is, what the 2% is. Cause you know, if we're taking it to the golf course or to competition, it's more important to know the the percentage first. And then based off practicing the app, then you'd start to have an idea of kind of the calculations. hundred percent. And that's kind of where, like, if you go to any tour event, there's guys putting Sharpie marks on every part of the green where it's 2%, 1%, 3%, one and a half, two and a half or whatever. Yeah. Cause you'll, that's a super important thing. Like one of the biggest things you'd see on a PGA tour practice screen right now, cause you can still use the levels out there, but not on the golf course. Is you'll see guys with a level in between their feet really trying to gauge whatever the slope is. And that's the only way to do it. There's no cheat code really for it. It's just kind of practice and you'll get better at it naturally. Yeah, I would say that's of the players I've spoken to who learn who are starting to move toward these more feel-based uh, slope in the feet systems rather than reading a putt more with your eyes only. The hardest part is not the math in the system or the how many fingers and how many arms and speed. The hardest part is can I learn to calibrate and feel that slope in my feet, which, as you said, takes quite a bit of reps. If you go to any high-level golf tournament, you're going to see a lot of people with a lot of levels without a putter just walking around a green, standing yep. and shuffling in their feet and in their shoes, just trying to feel for that slope and, and uh, the speed of that putt. Okay. And something just real quick that Tim Tucker, who caddied for Bryson for a long time, I've known pretty much my whole life. He's from Oregon. We actually was a, he was the pro at the golf club when I was a little kid. So we've kind of known him forever. He told me something super true that I, I tell people this all the time. I like saying it. He goes, if you look at a putt, is it flat or is it steep? And from there, flat typically is going to be a one or a two. Steep's going to be a three or a four. And then the second question is, is it really flat or kind of flat? Or is it really steep or kind mm -hmm. of steep? And that's kind of how you narrow it down from one, two, three, four. And I've actually found that to be pretty accurate. People do pretty decent at that. Yeah. You're kind of going back to the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. Yeah, cool. So he's even got a, a system to help kind of um, not necessarily just go to the number right away, but almost like a process of elimination to get to, well, it's probably going to be this or that. Yeah. And yeah, right it, again, if it gets you in the right ballpark, you're still going to be good if you, as long as you have good speed. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Um, Marcus, are there any, in your journey in instructing, are there any lessons along the way that you have learned that may or may not be about putting directly that have really um, helped shape you or your putting um, 
I'll leave you at that. You kind of take that where you take it. Uh, I'd say the two things that I've learned the most are communication. Cause I've seen it with guys on tour, especially where people can have two different languages, almost like golf terminology can be taken as one thing and another person can take it that way. And that was one of the things I learned early on where I was saying something and the guy I was working with was taking it a totally different way. And I didn't even know that until he said something after a round. So communication, getting on the same page. And I feel like coaching, especially at a higher level or just anyone looking for a coach there, there has to be somewhat of a connection there, like to be on the same page, just little things like that. I do believe make a difference. Cause I think, not every coach could work with every player. Some people are more suited, whether it be personality, just coaching style or whatever it is. I think they're going to benefit from other people. But that's kind of two of the main things I would say, just communication and uh, just people having different styles and meshing better with people. Because I've gone to lessons and it's just we, haven't, we have not been on the same page the entire lesson. Our communication wasn't good. And I feel like we just don't get much done in that time. And then mm. other people where instantly the same thing i'm thinking they're thinking you're on the same page and it works great and then trying to bridge the gap sometimes that's obviously something the more you do it the better you'll get but i feel like communication is kind of one of the biggest things really yeah no doubt um for those listening you know we have most of our listeners are probably not professional golfers but if you could shed some light on perhaps what are some we might say some myths or some misconceptions about putting that people might see or engage with where if you were coaching being like actually here's the truth behind this what might some of those things be for people if they're just going hey i'm gonna listen to this podcast with these guys and then i'm gonna i can go out and do this differently because i understand this better now or differently so on and so forth i feel like one of the things that you make i just i get a kick out of is people saying they draw or cut putts because once a ball is rolling it's just rolling so I've been using a Quintic system for two years now, giving a lot of lessons in Jacksonville these last two weeks. And a ball typically, let's say you actually start it with 10 degree or 10 RPM of hook spin. That ball is going to be rolling after like 14 inches. So you really can't hook a putt. Like if you hear people talking about on a 12 footer or something that they hooked it left, they might've pulled it left, but they didn't, that, that cut or that draw spin did not take that ball left. And that's kind of something I hear very commonly. And I think that kind of drives people a little crazy thinking that, oh, mm. I'm actually draw spinning it when that's not the case, actually. And then I think the other one is path of the putter does not really matter, which I think a lot of people would say that's weird or whatever, but it's like 93% of the start line of a putt is just your face angle at impact. How you get there, it doesn't really matter. Again, the path is seven percent of start line and so mm. i that's where kind of people have had much of success with different style strokes doesn't matter if they take it out drop it under brooks takes it in hoops it over tiger was really a little inside down the line and like all this different stuff the path doesn't matter it's just everyone every good putter has been able to square that face at impact to where they want that ball to start and that's kind of all that really matters i feel like mm. that is one thing kind of as we talked about what I learned is that path is not as important as I thought it was. I thought path was a way bigger yeah. deal in putting. And it's just, if you can start it online, that means your face angle is returning good every time. Yeah. And so the path doesn't matter as much because side spin doesn't have nearly as much effect as we might think. Cause like you said, by the time it's, you know, a foot or a foot and a half off of that, 
putter face. It's it's already rolling straight. Like the yep. side spin has been negated by physics, essentially. Yep. Right. So the vast majority of whether you hit a ball online or not is is the face, regardless of path, delivered to that start line. Correct. No. So Marcus, when do you change path? Uh if so like perfect example would be the other day I had a guy coming in and he was hitting really far into out on it, putting a lot of draw spin. He actually had uh backspin at first. And in that instance where the stroke's not really being repeated consistently, there's a little issue with it. That's kind of where I'll start to change path. But typically that's coming from bad mechanics. So once you kind of clean up the mechanics, the stroke path will typically fall into place. And so it's not really one thing that I'm specifically going to go in and work for. Cause if I see a bad path and that's resulting in a bad face angle, um, there's something else going on, whether it be hand action set up, something else is off. So it kind of would address the mechanics first. And that's going to typically put that stroke in line. What do you like to see as far as setup and address positions? Like what, are, what are your go-to's? So I'm pretty neutral, but again, I think uh, there's so many different ways to be successful that you kind of need to fit it into your body body style, your personality. Some people are going to be more bent over. Some people are going to stand up taller. Some people are going to have a wide stance. Some people are going to have a narrow stance. I feel like the only things that are pretty common that I want to see amongst everyone for the most part is either 50-50 kind of weight distribution, maybe a little more on the left side. Some people are going to be more successful with their weight on the right. That's a minority, I would say. But ball kind of, I like to go off of face regardless of stance width. People can have that ball kind of left cheek to left ear. Regardless of stance width, that's going to put you in a good spot to kind of be able to return that putter consistently. But those are kind of the two things where just left cheek to left ear for ball position. Shaft lean, I'm pretty neutral with. I don't really want a ton of lean. I don't want it backwards. Pretty much want it more straight up and down, maybe a little forward. Again, that kind of goes back to the individual and the putter style as well. But the big thing are just getting that squared up setup, kind of nothing too crazy. I don't mind the feet being open, but just pretty square with the setup. Again, pretty neutral with your weight distribution. Most people are going to benefit from being slightly on their left side, if anything, because it'll help take out some lateral movement. And then just kind of making sure that ball doesn't creep too far back or creep too far forward, because that's going to cause issues as well. Does it? Does it change with regard to eye dominance? So that's something that I learned from Farnsworth, actually, where he talked about every, we all see differently. Our eyes just start see naturally differently. And so there's ways to train your eyes and there's ways to kind of figure it out. But in general, based off of what he talked about, right eye dominant people are, are going to need to be right or right ear more to right shoulder. That kind of gets this eye kind of being more down the line. And then left eye is going to be kind of the opposite where it'll be like this a little bit. But the question I had for him was because everyone's heads might be need to be in a different spot based off how you see. I was like, if someone works on the right drills on the right things to correct their visuals, what will that do to how their heads positioned? And he said that if someone's working on the right stuff, doing it consistently, let's say their head needs to be here to see perfectly straight as they work on it, it'll naturally start to kind of get, more conventional, more normal, because they're training their eyes to see differently. Interesting. Um, you mentioned different types of putters. Like, how do you fit? How do you fit putters? Do you have a preference on toe hang, face balance? I even mentioned like thoughts on lap golf and the the line go balancing stuff. So 
that's kind of the next, I feel like, domain that I'm going to start to learn a little bit more about specifically. But just through my testing alone, where I've, I have guys come in, I had a PGA Tour player today that brought three putters in, and he liked the blade a little more. But as we hit 40 putts on the Quintic today, I was like, every number for you is better with your pretty much face balance mallet. And I think it's going to fluctuate a little bit. People that kind of like Tiger that have a more of a hook style stroke, I, I kind of fall under that category, are going to benefit more from a blade just because of how they kind of swing that toe and everything. But I feel like the way the golf world is trending, because I'm starting to, I mean, I tested an arm lock putter for the first time. And I was unbelievably shocked by how good the numbers were on it. Obviously, it takes still skill to learn how to start it online, how to get the speed dialed in. But the numbers were amazing on the Quintic when I was testing arm lock. Lab putters, there's definitely something to their technology. Uh, I went down actually this, uh, this last week with one of my buddies. I don't know if you guys have heard of Cure Putters. Hmm. They're kind of a... It's really, that was kind of an eye-opener for me. It's about, their putters are high MOI putters. They're like the highest MOI putters that you could honestly get. And that was a really big learning scenario for me where it's just MOI is the resistance to twist on an axis. Right. And so any axis. And so like pretty much if you hit that putter off the dead toe, it's not much different than hitting it off the dead center of the putter. And that's something that was interesting. Again, kind of going, learning from different guys that have different experiences, different philosophies. That was really helpful because he talked about when Nicholas won the masters in 86, his putter had about 8,500 MOI. And I think he said the average putter then was like 1500 and wow. it's kind of progressively increased over time. Like the spiders are obviously way higher now, yeah. but he's talking about that USGA hasn't capped MOI because he believes they don't really understand it yet. And that, that was a little testing. That was that, that I've big, had is, that was that was that bit sorry to interrupt you, but that was that big ugly putter he putted with in '86, right? That big one. Yeah, it's a six inch head, and like normal putters are about four four inches, four and a half, kind of yeah. the whole size of a hole. And the cure putters, they're big, and they might not look the best, but the numbers they've tested are really good. And the data that he was kind of showing us, we went and tested on our own, and kind of proved what he was saying was right, actually, as well. Marcus, clarify for us. You keep referencing a system that is giving you feedback. So, you know, most of our listeners are familiar with a track, man, because you're going to see that anywhere. It's very versatile relative to the type of putting technology that you would use to get numbers on your putting stroke and your ball roll, because that doesn't transfer to the practice facility as well as it does for being in like a putting lab or whatnot. Yeah. What is the system and what do you use it for? What are you looking for? Take us through kind of that, that process where if someone was going to go get a putting lesson from you, or somebody else using this type of system, you know, help educate them on it. So the system is called, it's a Quintic uh, ball roll. It's the exact name of it. They're based out of England. It's, there's really not too many of them out there. There's, I honestly don't know. They're pretty more rare. They call it the track man for putting. So in essence, what it is, it's just a light bar to create consistent lighting and then a high speed camera to track it. And then they have their software that you can, uh, once you purchase it, you can download, but it measures the putter and the ball independently. You don't put any extra weight on the putter. Cause that's one of the things I don't like about Sam Putt Lab, which is a really common one, or even Capto, because you're putting weight on the shaft, which translates into weight in the putter head, which changes the swing weight, changes the putter. With the Quintic, it's just measuring. There's two stickers you put on it, which doesn't change anything about the putter. And it's measuring these things independently. So what I'm looking for on there is face angle at impact. Cause again, like we talked about, that's 93% of star line. 
uh, acceleration, pre-impact and post-impact. So how they're bringing that putter into the ball, how consistently that is. And then with the ball stuff, launch angle, because you obviously need to get that thing up on top of the grass to hit it rolling good. And then overspin and side spin. So that's all I'm really looking for on that is those three things. And then kind of being able to adjust the person to be able to get the numbers into a better spot. But launch angle has been something that's actually been a huge help for me as a putting coach specifically, learning how the best players in the world launch it incredibly consistent. And that's a major factor for their speed control. Yeah, no doubt. If your launch angle is changing or your, which would be also, you know, by the laws of physics mean that your spin rate is also changing and you would be skipping yep. a ball perhaps more often than rolling it. It'd be very difficult to judge distance consistently if those are changing as well. 100%. Like driving it into the green is going to create that overspin. So once that ball kind of lands, it's going to take off at different speeds based off how much you drove it in the green, how much overspin it gets. In a perfect world, if you're going to air on one side, you'd want to air on launching it slightly too high because that's going to be a more predictable kind of rollout. It's going to be something more consistent to actually launching it, like let's say perfect. But those are kind of the things that have actually been a huge help for me, just kind of visually being able to see it and then attaching like numbers to it as well. Marcus, would you say that like guys like you mentioned the draws and the fades, like it's hard to hook putts. It's hard to hard to slice putts, but would I've seen a lot of guys that struggle putting, especially lag putts. They, they tend to have more of a slicey type stroke. Have you found that correlation versus like a guy like Tiger that hooks it and maybe will have a little more consistent, call it ball speed, call it smash factor off the face? Yeah, so I feel like the reason people that hook it typically are better putters is because it's easier to putt that way versus kind of cutting across it. Cutting across it is, it just, it doesn't really fit the putter motion. It's a really unnatural thing. Obviously, it's designed to arc around you. So if you're cutting across it, the ball doesn't, the ball's not in the air. So it can't curve. And I think that's why some historical of the best ball strikers that are faders that weren't great putters kind of struggled because their natural tendency was probably more of a cut style stroke. Not that people can't be good at it, but I think you're, it's way harder. Versus someone that draws it, that kind of fits into the natural motion of a putting stroke because you're standing far away from the ball. Things should arc a little bit. And I think that's where people that hook it are a little more successful because, again, it's just a more natural motion for putting. Versus this way, you're really kind of struggling to kind of get a good gauge of start line and speed. Right. Well, I mean, if your path is more along the arc or you might call like a draw path, like that is... The laws of physics, you know, centripetal force says that it's more likely to help you square a putter and the torque at least helping you square it and move it along that same arc. Whereas if I have more of a slice path, like I'm having to create torque to either square the club or get something back on path. Is that, is that yeah, yeah, right on. Good. Marcus, do you ever have people on Quintech that come in, like, let's say you've got player A, player B, and they both come in, and their numbers are really both really good. And let's just say player A is Denny McCarthy, and player B is uh, 150th on putting on strokes gain on tour. Do you ever see that, or is it – this is kind of a two-part question. Or is it typically if their numbers are good on Quintech, they're really good putters? Or is it he may may have good numbers on Quintech, and then your goal is to get him to do more of, like, doc stuff of, like – He's got to accept and let go and quit trying to be so perfect, or it could turn into be more of a mental and performance thing. Or read greens better. Or read greens better, right. Yeah. I mean, you guys pretty much nailed it exactly what I was going to say. So, like, let's say player A was Denny McCarthy. 
just knowing what I've known about him, watching him play, the guy reads greens incredibly well, his speed's amazing, and he's very confident. Versus if another guy came in that was like 150th in putting, let's say, but had similar very good numbers, that goes back to they're either unconfident, their green reading's not very good, or they're having some sort of performance issue. But it's kind of that, which like the first thing I would start with was how is your speed on golf course? And then how's your green reading? And then from there, if those are good, obviously it's some sort of performance issue, which could be routine or obviously kind of Raymond, that would be more your, <laughs> your category, but mm -hmm. that's kind of where it would go. You kind of hit with the head or nail on the hand. <laughs> Sorry, you kind of hit that right where it should be in just terms of there is an issue somewhere outside of their physical uh, stroke or whatever it is. If they're putting up good numbers there, physical, yeah. something's not right out on the golf course. Yeah, it's either a complementary skill deficit or unstable confidence that isn't allowing them to use those skills freely. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. Um, in a putter fitting, so I'm always curious about the fitting process as much as I'm biased toward our psychology, like equipment matters, practice matters, skill matters as well. I'm always curious about the fitting process, not just full swing, but especially for putting where by definition, like the more golf balls you hit in a lesson, there's, there's these like peaks and curves, right? So if I'm getting up fitting for wedges, I'm going to get better after about 25 balls as I start to groove a swing. Right. Yeah. And then I'm going to see a deficit as I start to get tired and I, you know, I'm hitting tired golf shots. Right. Take us through the putting fitting process. Like, do you, you know, is there a point where somebody has hit the same putt on the same line at the same speed so many times where that might start to impair your ability to find the right fit of a putter for their stroke? So that's a great question, actually. Because I kind of, we even did, went through that today a little bit. I had uh, Jimmy Stanger, who just got out on the PGA Tour. We were kind of hitting some putts inside today. And started with the mallet. Numbers were really good. And then we went to the blade. And the blade was not as good to start. And then once he kind of hit more putts with it, it kind of the numbers got better. And then we went back to the mallet. The numbers were super good. Went back to the blade. And the blade numbers weren't as good. So kind of like you were saying, that people will adapt to something They'll figure it out, especially a better player. They're going to figure out yeah. how to swing it or whatever. I see it all the time with club fittings on tour, specifically one of the pin guys, Kent Notes, who does a really good job of it. He will not let guys hit more than like two drivers. Like if they hit two bad drivers, he takes the driver away from them. He's like, you're right. just going gonna to mess with your golf swing at that point. That's right. You'll start trying to hit the ball straight. 100%. And, then, and like, especially guys on tour, they will figure it out. And that could be detrimental to other yeah. parts of their game. But That's right. similar in putting... But putting so unique because shapes people see differently, people align differently. Adele Golf was one of my earlier foundations, actually. He was from Oregon originally. And his whole process is about getting you aligned correctly. And because so through him, I learned that people, some, some people see circles better than squares. Some people see triangles better than that. And so that's kind of why specific head shapes work better for some people. Mm -hmm. And so the fitting process is more than just about toe hang. It's about what people align well, what people can stroke well. And so it's really kind of hard. To, I think it's hard to actually fit someone for a putter to go in one time and be like, this is the putter you should use. And then you don't go again. Yeah. And that's why I, that's why putter fittings to me have been not overrated, but I just think it's so hard to get an accurate fitting because things can change and you might not have everything that you should have in front of you at the time, potentially. 
Yeah, they can tend to be more than club fitting. Again, correct me if I'm off course. What I'm hearing is they can t- putter fitting can be a little bit more of a snapshot than it can be like an ongoing movie in the way that a, a more of an iron or a wedge or driver fitting might be. A hundred percent. Just because I think there's just more variables there. Where like if you went in to let's say Scotty Cameron, they might not have all the stuff that if you went to Odyssey, and so it's just very different. And some people like the feel of the Odyssey better. Like guys that grew up with that white hot insert. Mm-hmm. We'll probably never want to play a Scotty Cameron just because all Scotty Cameron's are that metal, actually, and coming from something so soft. And so that's where there's just so much variance in putter fitting that it's really hard to get it nailed down just in one fitting. So, yeah. so Marcus, what about counterbalance versus like head weight? Like, what do you, where do you stand on that? Or how do you, when would you recommend one of your players going from a standard weight putter to counterbalance or vice versa? Uh, kind of if they're just, if they're not if they're not consistently swinging the putter well. Like, I really think, like, going back to lap and all those in arm lock or whatever, there's something to all of that. I'm a, I'm a believer arm lock should be banned, especially after my testing. Because I'm a guy that I, I put draw spin on it. And when I, put on, when I put myself on that arm lock, it took my, like, spin numbers down from, like, 10 to 15 draw spin to 1 to 3. And it was still with my hook style stroke, but just the fact that you can't really turn the face over really eliminates a massive variable. So I've told this to people forever. I think that right now, arm lock isn't an issue, but if you have kids that are 10 years old that can get fit for an arm lock putter, and all they know from 10 to 22 is arm lock, they're going to be really good at it. It's why the be- speed's going to be important for them. It's why the belly putter got banned because they were seeing all these kids in the AJGA worlds just wearing everybody out with belly putters. That's, and and that's, that's where right. I think arm lock is trending because the fittings are becoming way better, more accessible. The putters are easier to get now. And if you can just, again, if you have a 10-year-old kid and he just does that, because I've asked tour players, imagine if you were your whole life from what you putted, you putted with an arm lock. How good would you be? And they're like, I'd be, I'd be pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's definitely a more, you know, again, before just talking the physics of it, it's more stable because it's locked higher on the putter, in which case then your face rotation is just less. Yeah, and I just, I don't know how they can't call that anchoring when it's literally jammed into your arm. <laughs> don't get that. Um, it's an ongoing debate for sure uh, in many of the circles that you're in, also in many of the circles that I'm in, for sure. Marcus, how do you determine, you've talked about, obviously, we're we're trying to build putters with really good speed control, start line, good start lines, and good, good green reading skills. If we can get those three locked in, everybody can be a pretty functional putter. Would you agree? Okay. Yes. How, how do you determine if their start line is good enough? So, honestly, something as simple as a Pell's putting tutor, a putting plate. Any device like that, you can even do tees, just different drills to test people starting it online. And that's really all it is. Because one of the coaches that I've gotten to know a little bit, his name's John Carlson. He's a big coach in Europe. He's, I love, I really liked him. I was kind of drawn to him because looking at his page, his player strokes aren't necessarily the most conventional, but they're all good putters. He's more of a performance style coach. And I was talking to him this year at the Open, and he's talking about it where his big thing is like extensive start line testing, however you do it. And he's like, my best player has an unconventional stroke, but he starts it online better than any other player I have. And that's why I'm a big fan of Pell's putting tutors, putting plates, whatever it is that you use for a start line tool. Using that consistently is going to help your face angle. Cause that's again, 93% of start line, but that's really all it is. It's just 
getting that down. And then you can also mix in start line with speed control. There's drills for that. And so I like stuff like that. You, uh, you mentioned with Lee Hodges, a grip change in a new putter. And that that's a, another two part question. Like how do you determine putter grip? How do when do you decide when they need to make a change when a player needs to make a change? So that one was a combination of, so we had, that was that right after Tory Pines this year, he three putted a couple times on the back nine to miss the cut by one and it was speed control issues. He was putting left hand low with a heavy, heavy center shafted mallet. And so we went into Scotty Cameron on Saturday and the head uh, fitter there, Paul Vizanka, who's a really good dude, just kind of ran us through a fitting and he kind of came to the same conclusion that one, the putter was too heavy. And so we kind of lightened the putter. That was a bit of big help. And then Lee, even before we went in, is like, I'm done with left-hand low. My speed is better conventional. And so he's like, I'm just I'm going back to conventional. And so since then, we've really kind of worked on speed control and just sticking with that. All the stuff that we've done helped build it. But the putter fitting was just Paul kind of giving him options, talking about what they liked. Paul recommended the go-low mount that he's in now with it's, it's a single bend hosel, so it's very similar to a center shaft and how it enters. Until, but it's been a really big help for Lee, and I think a lot of it is the weight of the putter. I think he was putting with a putter that was too heavy before, and then getting to the conventional grip is just something he had better speed control with. We uh, we talk a lot about the yips, so you know, Doc's Doc and I talk a lot about stable stable confidence, and and our definition of stable confidence is being on time, being present, and then um, having acceptance of all outcomes, like pre-accepting all outcomes that come our way, right? Um, how do you, obviously there's mechanical issues that come with with people that fight the yips. What would be something you would typically see from somebody that, that would have a yippy type of stroke? Sometimes it's as simple as the routine before. And then obviously, like you kind of nailed it too, where their mind is at. Because a lot of the times those people are automatically thinking about the bad things that are going to happen as opposed to doing the things that they can control. And so sometimes a really detailed routine can get people out of that, something that will make them think about, okay, I need to be really specific, like left foot, right foot, boom, 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 as step by step and kind of keeping their mind right where they are as opposed to the guys that are thinking of, oh, no. And that's where I, I believe I've had more success with that, where it's like, getting really specific with your routine to the point where you're thinking more about the routine than you are about the outcome or what else is going to happen. And I think that's been a big help. I'm kind of curious, where, what's your thoughts on that, Raymond? It can help. <clears throat> yeah, there's two, two different mechanisms behind having a really detailed routine. One is it can help, if you, especially if there are physical sensations involved with it. You know, we are more grounded in the present moment when there's a physical anchoring point to it, which is why having a perhaps a mindful breath as part of a routine, whether putting or otherwise can be really helpful. Um, oftentimes though, what we see with like, well, okay, I, I uh, modified my routine or I changed my grip is there's a shelf life for how long that can last because it's a bit of a distraction technique from the outcome. And if you don't change your relationship with the risk involved and the outcome that it is make and miss, and sometimes you're going to miss more than you make, Oftentimes what happens is your brain goes, oh, we're doing something different because now I'm really into my routine and now I'm really into this new grip or a new putter. But eventually your brain catches up and goes, hey, we're actually doing that same thing where it's make or miss. Mm -hmm. And so then then you have to address the anxiety at the source, which is your unwillingness to see how things unfold. And that can get um, 
like I said, those things can be really helpful for times, but what we tend to see is they have a pretty short shelf life on them. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that as well. And that's kind of something that the yips, I'm not something I haven't been able to necessarily dive too much and I haven't dealt too much with it at this point, at least I've had a few people, but that's definitely an area that is really unique. Like obviously like Lucas Glover is a great example of someone that kind of got over it this year. The long putter was a big help, but working with, I believe his name is Jason Kuhn. And they've had a bunch of success. Obviously, Lucas going back-to-back this year was huge. He's an unbelievable person. I was happy for him to do that. But just kind of, it's interesting because he, Lucas being a specific example of someone that hits it so good and was still, I think the week he won John Deere, he missed like five putts from inside like four feet or something. And so he's still winning golf tournaments with the Yips. And that's why it was interesting. Once he got into that long putter and was able to start rolling it pretty good, easy to see why he started playing well again. Yeah. yeah. Marcus, have you seen a, a correlation? I've always kind of said that like a lot of great putters were born out of necessity. Like if you look at a Brad, Brad Faxon or you look at a Vaughn Taylor or you look at even kind of like a Ben Crenshaw, even a Seve for, for that matter, a lot of these guys hit it wayward and had to learn to survive with, with great putting. Um, Kind of to your point with Lucas, like a lot of times I'll tell my players, look, the more the better you hit it, the more makeable, missable putts you're going to have, right? You go hit three or four greens around and chip it to four or five feet and make all those putts. You think you're the best putter in the world versus hitting it to 15 feet on every hole and have a great ball striking around and see a bunch of putts miss. Have you seen any of that or have you had, ever had to talk to your players about any of that? Uh-huh. Like, so I've actually seen it more in reverse because the guys on tour, you pretty much don't get out there unless you hit it pretty damn good and so some of the guys that work with lee kind of being one of them where lee hits it so good hits he drives it so well he's such a good iron player that he gives himself so many looks and it's easy to get down on yourself so one of the biggest things that we talked about is just all you can do is what you can control if you hit a good putt if you hit it on your line with your speed that's by definition a good putt whether it goes in or not is a whole different thing and that's actually something with Lee specifically he's gotten way better at is acceptance of a missed putt or acceptance of anything. But I've seen that a lot where guys get on tour and their iron play, their driving's really pretty good, but their chipping and their putting is not up to a tour standard. And that's kind of where you see, I feel like where you see the really good guys kind of put it together and start winning on tour is the guys that still hit it good and they've just learned to get their chipping and putting up to the way they hit the ball, golf ball. But obviously there's examples of other people where kind of they don't really hit that many greens, but they make every putt. And I think that those guys are getting harder and harder to get out on tour because so many people hit it so good now that you can't necessarily score if you're having to make so many putts from eight to 10 feet for par. And that's just mentally exhausting as well. Yeah. I mean, the statistics for um, the, Epson Tour, Corn Ferry Tour, PJ Tour, and LPJ Tour basically show that um, being successful at those levels, it's a putting contest and a recovery contest. And ball striking is not nearly as much a separator as we really think it is. You kind of just, yeah. it's kind of a skill. It's almost just a baseline skill that you have to hit it well enough to be here. But what will separate you is are you scoring with scoring clubs, particularly in and out around the greens? And when you do make mistakes or miss putts or have rough holes or make bogeys, can you get back to playing freely sooner than somebody else does? 
100%. And that's kind of where I feel like golf getting just so much better in every area now that you see these guys that I like, I really, I'm really curious about the next generation of kids that are coming through college. Like obviously Ludwig Aberg's leading the tournament right now. And he's just out, he's been out there for, he's been a pro for what, five months? Yeah. Not even. And he's looking at the success he's had. And then Gordon Sargent, a guy like him, I'm curious how he's going to do when he gets out. But there's just so many complete players coming up now that it's going to be curious to see just the future of golf because it's in such a good spot. The players and the coaching is so good now that it's it's really universal. Wherever you are, you can get access to any coach all over the world because a lot of people are doing online lessons now. Or like I said, you can go on YouTube and learn how people gain club head speed or watch anyone that's posting about it. Like Craig Chalmers was a good example of an older person who who got into speed training and got his club head speed up. He can get up to 120 now. And sure. that's insane. So like golf's just getting better, getting more athletic. Yep. Yeah. So we're, we're seeing this trend in, in all sports too, Marcus, just as a frame of reference where the baseline um, competencies is increasing. Like if you want to be a professional soccer player now, you have to be really good at everything and then probably really, really good at something. And, you know, obviously in golf, we're seeing that too. Like you've got to be able to hit the ball in play and you got to yeah. hit greens, but then you probably got to be either really, really elite at one of those, or you're also going to need to gain strokes on the field putting if you're going to contend in tournaments. Yep. Or really long. Yep. <clears throat> or, yeah, like I said, you you know, and even distance, you know, we're just getting off track here a little bit, but, you know, speed training, the reason it's so popular now is like, if you're talking about like, how am I going to get better? It's, distance is the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, you could hit the ball, you could not improve at ball striking, but if you just add distance to everything you hit, you are now a better golfer than you were before. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. <clears throat> so, so Marcus, so to, to kind of wrap this up a little bit, talking about improvement, um, give us our listeners, a few of your favorite putting drills to do? Uh, so the classic Tiger Gate drill probably being the first one. I'd rec that You can combine that in a start line. Like you could set that up with a Pell's Putting Tutor. You could set that up with a lot of different things, and that assures your face angle is going to be good at impact, and you're hitting the center of the face, which is kind of helping that speed control because if you're not hitting the center of the face, speed is going to vary, obviously. And then just really any kind of speed drill, like ladder drills where you got to get – slightly past the ball before one of my favorite drills is uh, putting a alignment stick or club two feet behind the hole and then a tee at five feet 15 feet and 30 feet and you got to go three that get to the hole but don't hit the stick at five feet three that do that at 15 feet three that do to the 30 feet three more three more and three more and if you get three strikes within that you're uh, start the drill over so there's a little kind of pressure in it and it's just really learning to stop the ball where you want it but that's, those two things, I would say, just the Tiger Gate drill, a start line drill, whether, with whatever that is, and then just any kind of speed drill. And honestly, even something as simple as just hitting putts over 30 feet and really just trying to work on stopping it by whatever hole you're going to is great practice as well. Awesome. Mark, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience uh, just about putting about yourself before we wrap up tonight? Uh. Putting is way less complicated than everyone makes it seem. I, I really, really do believe that. I think in the effort to understand it and try and apply numbers to it, is, I think it's almost made it more complicated at times. 
I think it's a blend of science and art where you got to have some good science in terms of the stroke and all this other stuff that is actually working for you. But at the end of the day, you can have the best quintic numbers in the world and not make any putts. So it's just, just all you got to do again, it's why I'm a big believer. This is start line speed and green reading. If you can do that, you're going to make putts. You're going to be a good putter. And kind of like we were saying earlier, acceptance is a big thing too. Because putting is the, I feel like it's the most volatile part of the game. Because you could do everything awesome the first day and gain a bunch of shots putting. Put it great the next day, make nothing, and you lose two shots. And so acceptance is going to be one of the biggest things as well. And it, yeah, and it goes back to it goes back to us as kids, right? Like we didn't care. We just went out there and hit putts, and we we tended to hold a lot of putts when we were younger. Versus now, we've got all the scars and the damage, and we don't we don't make putts, <laughs> right? Yeah, sorry. Just side note, real quick. I had an eleven year old in in for a lesson yesterday. This kid was amazing, and like the whole time, I'm just like I'm just trying to not screw this kid up. Like just keep him in a good spot. Give him like all right. All you need to work on is getting into your setup the same each time. And then just keep doing what you're doing because he honestly put up some of the best Quintic numbers I've seen from tour players or anything. And it was just, he's just a natural kid that's going about it and enjoying the process, just trying to start it on his line. Like, I think that's a big factor going back to a kid, like being, being just fun. Putting's, putting's like shooting a basketball. Like you should be pretty natural and it should be pretty fun for someone to do as well. Yeah. That, that playful mindset is a powerful place to be in. No Marcus, where can they find you uh, online, website stuff? Where can people find you if they're looking to get in touch with you? Uh, Potter's putting at gmail.com is the email, but Potter's putting on Instagram is where I'm most active. I kind of see most of the messages there. And that's that's the platform where I'm constantly posting on or I'm actually using. But Instagram is kind of the main thing for me. Yeah, outstanding. Marcus, thank you very much for joining us, uh, especially as you're getting ready to jet set here in the morning. Um, we appreciate you. Chase, take us out. Where can they find us, by the way, before we just let them off the hook here? At uh, GBTS Podcast on Instagram, at Chase Cooper Golf on Instagram, at BTS underscore Mindset on Twitter for Doc. And I'll uh, I'll reiterate, um, I, I sent in, uh, I did an online uh, putting lesson with with Marcus a couple months ago, and his stuff was, I was really, he, he was, um, very detail oriented in what he saw. And, uh, he said I needed to quit and give up the game and start over. So it was, <laughs> it was very, uh, very, very smart in, in, in his approach, but no, uh, I was very impressed and, uh, there's not, um, a ton of, um, you know, just specific putting only coaches out there. And, uh, I think, um, there's a few guys out there that are good. And I think Marcus is one of the best. And I was, I was very impressed with, um, with doing an online lesson. So if you guys are struggling with your putting at home, go ahead, send him a message. He was really quick to get back to me back a couple months ago. And, uh, he's, he's helped my putting out a lot already. So, um, so yeah, just want to, just want to echo that. So Marcus, thanks for coming on again at Potter's putting and, uh, we appreciate your time. No, thank you very, very much for having me on. Appreciate it. It was a good talk today. Awesome. We'll see y'all next time. See ya.